Calling all benders and non-benders alike. Jump into the epic world of Avatar with your favorite podcast, Avatar, Braving the Elements. Hosted by me, Janet Varney. And me, Dante Bosco. Each week we'll recap and discuss a new episode. So come join us and our amazing guests from creators to cast to superfans to chat about all things Avatarverse. It's Fire Nation time. Book of Fire. Let's go. Listen to Avatar Braving the Elements wherever you get your podcasts. A graphic novel, a TV show, well it's not TV, it's HBO, and will this thing succeed, and by how much, man? And some might cheer, and some might scoff, because it's Damon Lindelof, but either way we're off to watch some Watchmen. Watching Watchmen Talking Watchmen Analyzing Watchmen And maybe arguing over Watchmen Welcome to Watchmen Watch, a podcast about Watchmen Where we talk about Watchmen the comic We talk about Watchmen the TV show We talk about Watchmen the movie We talk about Watchmen the bread We talk about Watchmen the breakfast cereal Watchmen the shoes Uh, Watchmen the building Watchmen, my cousin, who is named Watchmen Zalbin Uh, We talk about all of this and so much more on this podcast I am Alex I'm Justin I am Pete that is too much, Salbs. Too it's much. Never too enough. Much watching. It's never enough. You you watch things with your eyes. It's an unlimited amount of things you can watch. So that's what's exciting about it. Uh, Justin, I watch things with my heart. <laughs> nice. Me I, too, buddy. I, I couldn't help but notice uh, our fourth ho- co-host. He's not here. What's what's going on? You got any news on that? Uh, yes, I was hoping like it wouldn't come up, but it does because <laughs> uh, he's one of four. Um, he just texted me, um, Alan Moore, our fourth co-host, the writer of Watchmen, very famous. He, he really planned on being here, um, but he, um, he's finished taking his name off stuff, and now he's mm-hmm. taking my name off stuff. What? So oh, man. he's actually, he's erasing, uh, I won't have an identity. Um, he took my name off my birth certificate. Oh, that's wow. crazy. I was going to yeah. say, you just released that erotic novella. Yeah, thank you for pronouncing it um, correctly. As I said, <laughs> lightly Italian. Yes. It is a novella. Uh, you had a, a really beautiful reception the other day. Alan Moore was there. We got a little tipsy on some uh, pink sparkling champagne um, yes, bubbles. Some pink bubbles, as he likes My to call them. My drink of choice. Yep. Yeah, uh, but uh, I'm sad he's not here. I was very excited to talk about this issue. We're going to be talking about issue five of Watchmen: Fearful Symmetry. Pete, I know you're clapping because you love fear, right? No, this is one. Of, this was one of my favorite uh, issues. He loves symmetry. Pizza symmetry, dude. <laughs> Real chasing butterflies type guy. Well, this is interesting. This is something that's come up. We've talked about a little bit when we first launched the podcast on our Patreon Slack. People were saying, "Ooh, I wonder what's going to happen when Pete gets to the issue about Rorschach." Because the discussion, which I thought was very well said with the Patreon members, uh, a bunch of people were talking about how Rorschach as a teenager or whenever you potentially first read Watchmen when you're sort of coming of age, you potentially identify with Rorschach. You're like, oh, I'm this other, I'm this nerd who's reading comic books. But as you get older and particularly now, 
you understand that Rorschach is a bit of a conspiracy nut, and that's saying it very lightly, and that's something that they're playing off of. We talked about this in the preview episode on the HBO show. They're blowing it out. They're having seemingly a bunch of people called the Seventh Cavalry who completely misunderstood the writings of Rorschach and are using him to spur on a alt-right-esque movement. Now, this is the issue, last issue, focused almost completely on Dr. Manhattan, his yeah. origin, what was going on in him, got on it his It was head. a real thinking man's issue. It was. Uh, this issue, it's not completely Rorschach, but it's certainly the Rorschach issue. Is that why you were excited, Pete? And in total, given that you do love Rorschach that much, but we've been having these discussions on the podcast, did you view this issue any differently? Um, no, I, I still very much, uh, love Rorschach. Uh, think he's a <laughs> solid dude. Um, I, it's funny because, uh, solid I, dude, he's going to definitely now, show up for my bachelor party. Do you know what I would, I, just, I would expect the most from Rorschach if he saw you give you a sweet fist bump. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I tell you what though. It's funny because now I relate to the dude reading the comic next to the, uh, next to the newsstand. <laughs> Really? Why is that? Because you read comics? Because I read comics, and uh, I say I swear the same way he does. So, um, yeah, I thought <laughs> I think I still think Rorschach is great. I don't know. I love how grimy he is, how real and raw he is. Uh, his problem with authority. I think he's uh, a solid uh, uh, character, and I think he's a lot of fun. Uh, I definitely I, don't. I, Agree I would argue with a that lot he of his politics. Not, he's not boring. fun. He's What's not that? fun. I would argue he's not fun. Oh, weird. He, he's like super negative. He has a horrible worldview. And but what about that whole thing about look behind you? That was fun. What about uh, shoving that dude in the fridge? That was fun. Well, he's throwing around this poor, broken down man who's dying anyway, and he's being. He's one of the few people that Rorschach encounters who is truly below him, and I think he takes pleasure in inflicting pain on him, which is something that is not super heroic. Um, right. And I just think Rorschach, his conspiracy theorist sort of headspace, and the fact that he doubts everything happens to be right um, in this case, and he's the only one that sniffs out the mystery here. But think of any other day in his life before this when he was like, Oh, there's look at this diner flyer. Yeah, but it's the, all leading up to this day, though. This is when he's the hero. Uh, but there's th- so many days where he was just um, shaking down some random strangers and that's hassling just, them for uh, something that wasn't there. That's just him sacrificing himself for the moment. You know and I mean? also all the people that he like beats up because he thinks they ate at the same diner where there was a crime. Right, right. That makes sense. Well, I just want to say, though, I'm not saying that, like, I agree with how he's doing things. Just someone who's reading a comic, I think he's a fun character, and I'm super glad that he's a part of this world. I love how he fits into all of this. Wait, sorry, are you talking about the kid sitting next to the newsstand or Rorschach? Rorschach. What? Yeah, I mean, I lo- I, <laughs> it's a great character in this story. It's right. just, I, to Alex's point, it's just so interesting the way you read it when you're a kid and it's like cool to be uh, and this is also when we were reading this was probably in like the late mid to late 90s uh, early right, 2000s right. where like badass comics were all about like oh who's this uh, mysterious badass so uh, dwells mm-hmm. in darkness all that shit and right. he seemed just cool and now you see all the stuff that sticks out as like whoa his worldview is actually um, bad right 
Well, on, on a thematic bed, just to take a step back from this a bit, and we were talking about this quite a bit during the Dr. Manhattan podcast, but I think it's also very much applicable here. Among the other themes that they're dealing with very heavily in this comic, on the character bent, it's a lot about can you change? And yeah. more than can you change, it's can you change from whatever your formative point was? That's something that Dr. Manhattan is dealing with. He was remade when he was blasted apart. Is he John Osterman? Is he Dr. Manhattan? What is he now? Is he something that exists simultaneously in that moment when he was destroyed, as well as the past and present and future? And or is he the pirate in, you know, on, the, on that raft? I don't. That's the one thing no. I don't think he is. No, he's not. Uh, again, I was talking about Doctor Manhattan, uh, but Rorschach <laughs> is you're, you're jumping all over the place, Pete. Uh, Rorschach, in a parallel, he is the character that cannot move on from the heyday of being a vigilante. The very rare grim- glimpses we get of him during his partnership with Night Owl, that's when it seems like he was probably at his best, right? He was at his cleanest. He was, he's probably not happy, but he was certainly at his happiest. And he is the person that is holding on to that. He's the person that's resisted the keen act, resisted the future. And ultimately to jump ahead to the end of the story, that's his undoing. He can't change. He can't move forward with the times, even though Adrian Veidt is the person who is adapting to the times and not only adapting them, but trying to force them forward in a certain way. So I think that's something that plays really heavily here is, I mean, it it checks out. I think that's why Rorschach is such a perfect name and identity for him. The world around him is changing. He does not. And so the interpretation of his actions is different, just like Mm -hmm. a Rorschach test, depending on who's looking at it, they're going to see whatever they see in it. And I also think that plays into how, we watched, we read this when we were younger and we're reading it now and we have a totally different interpretation because we've changed. This character has not changed. Um, the Rorschach blah is exactly what it was when Alan Moore wrote this and Dave Gibbons drew it. And now we have a totally different understanding of him. And that's, that's amazing to have yeah. that level of synergy. So cool. Well, the, yeah, the, uh, it also says something about the writing, how it's, it's the same. You change around it. You get different things from it. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. The other thing that I'd say, though, is that Watchmen was so influential to the comics that, as you were pointing out, Justin, we, uh, I know I didn't read Watchmen when it came out in 1986. I probably read it 10 years later after there had been a full decade of Watchmen influencing comics. And then there was a reaction to that reaction and a reaction to that reaction and so on and so forth. So whereas Watchmen was coming out and redefining things as was happening, This also we've seen we've grown up reading comics for the past couple of decades that have influenced our thinking about comics. We've seen comics, you know, uh, just to get into specific the structure of this issue. uh, I thought it was funny that we were reading this one because there's another comic book that we read recently that we reviewed that was. Uh, very similar structurally. Uh, so this is structured like a Rorschach blot. It's uh, it's essentially a palindrome. It starts at the beginning, meets the middle, and then parallels towards the end. There's a book called Ice Cream Man that came out recently that did that as well. It was more specifically a palindrome where you could read it backwards and forwards and change the story depending on how you looked at it, uh, which clearly is based on this issue. Uh, so even now, even decades later, there are still comic books that are adapting and using the influence of Watchmen, which makes a lot of sense. Um, should we should we jump into the issue? Should we walk through it? 
Yeah, let's walk sure. through. Do you, do you wish that there were more characters named after uh, psychological evaluation tests? Like Absolutely. A, uh, like role play would be a fun, like, okay, you, I'm the hero, but now I'm going to be the villain. Yeah. You be the hero. And let's uh, see how this goes. There's, there was that comic book that came out that was called Sometimes It's Just a Cigar Man. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> that was, that's that was kind of interesting. Yeah, and of course, Oedipus, the original superhero. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, uh, so uh, here, I'll, I'll start walking us through the issues. So we have this first page, which, again, is paralleled in the final page as well, where we see some footsteps. Um, one of the great things about this issue in particular, we've talked certainly about Alan Moore, and we've talked about Dave Givens. We've only touched on John Higgins' coloring a little bit in various issues. It's so prominent here in particular because almost every uh, panel changes the coloring like there's almost a light flashing back and forth, uh, yeah. sort of rolling back and forth here. And we get that in particular. It sets that up right in the first page as somebody, it turns out it's Rorschach, walks up this dirty stairway on his way to find Moloch, uh, who he knows, knows more about whatever conspiracy is going on. Uh, and yeah. then uh, to Pete's point, I, I, I sort of get what Pete's saying, because you do have a sense of like the extreme vigilante, like the Punisher and whatnot, him doing things where he, Moloch slowly walks through his house and then eventually finds a note in the refrigerator with the Rorschach plot that says behind you. And then he turns around and Rorschach is there and Rorschach pushes him into the fridge. Um, what do you think, Justin? You seem a little more conflicted about this. Moves like this, are they cool to you or do they feel dangerous? Uh, it was cool. It's a cool move. It's a cool, like, storytelling thing. But putting myself in the head of, like, Rorschach, this, why, why do this to this poor? He's just scaring. Maybe I just have more sympathy well, for Moloch now. Like, he, he didn't need to. This is like a, playing a prank on this poor man who he knows he's dying. He knows he's terrified. Like, it's just unnecessary. And then he's just going to hassle him anyway. Uh, yeah, but just to back up the truck a little bit, the coloring and it just it's one of these things where it's like it's art and stuff like this that makes it so easy to go back to this book because the paneling, because the coloring is so awesome. Uh, it doesn't get tired to look at it and to kind of go back and uh, uh, reread it again. Um, there's so much cool stuff going on in this book that it's just, uh, you know, you kind of, as we mentioned, get different stuff. But yeah, sure. Um, but he doesn't know what's going on with Malik. He thinks that Malik is maybe holding back information. So regardless of his health, regardless of that stuff, he wants information and he feels he's in the right and uh, getting it this kind of gruff, um, uh, you know, overly masculine way. I mean, I take that point. Like, I guess Moloch could be involved somehow. But right. do you think Rorschach thinks that he is here? Well, he do- he definitely does because he goes to his place to get info from him. And in his mind, it's like he knows what's going on. He's on the list. He's got to he's got to be in the loop. I do think Mala, not Malik, excuse me, Rorschach is very much grasping at straws. Like, this is one of the flaws with him, right, is that... Mm-hmm. 
he is eventually right. He does manage to stumble on the right answers, but he's going for everything. There was an issue back where he looked at Laurie and Dan being together and he's like, well, 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 they're probably cheating on Dr. Manhattan. Maybe they planned the whole thing. Maybe it's Laurie. I'm going to go after her, which is just as crazy as any other possibility. It just turns out he stuffs Moloch in a fridge and eventually discovers the right answer and gets on the right track with things. To your point, Justin, uh, I think part of it is that we've already now we're five issues in, right? These superheroes are not good people. They haven't had a good relationship with the world. They haven't done a good thing. So if it was another comic book where we're like, fuck yeah, Rorschach. Yeah. Go for it. Rorschach. Get him. Get that fucker. Moloch the mystic. I get it. But we know he's a sick dude with cancer who maybe did some not so nice things in the past, but ultimately he's going to die very soon. So it's not deserved what's happening to him from Rorschach. And also uh, at the end of this has, issue, he, he goes back to hassle Moloch again, and that's where he gets caught. So he does pay a price for his cruelty. Well, and at the end of this no, panel, no, no, no. hold on, on hold sixth, on, hold on a second. Hold on a second. First off, when he's got the fridge closed, there's that whole panel where Rorschach is thinking, and then he realizes, oh, I'm wrong. I'm going to let him out of the fridge. And the only reason he goes back to his place is not to beat information out of him. It's because he got a note in the trash can that says, meet me at 1130. I have news. So he doesn't go back to harass him. He gets set up. I think you're wrong about that, and I think you're wrong on both counts. First of all, with the refrigerator thing, he's stuffing Moloch in the refrigerator, and Moloch says, oh, no, 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 oh, God, don't. Rorschach, please, it wasn't wasn't me. I don't know. I don't know who it was. He closes in the refrigerator, and he doesn't think better of it. He realizes, okay, I think Moloch's kind of telling me the truth now, so I'm going to let him out of this refrigerator. He doesn't feel bad about it. No, he realizes, oh, he doesn't know anything, and he lets him out. I I guess. Yeah. But he, uh, I don't know. Rorschach's not a good guy here. I'm sorry. Uh, and he hasn't slept in many days, so he's not right. thinking straight. Right. Have yeah. you ever been stuffed in a fridge? Pete? Mm. Huh, I'm thinking. What's the weirdest place you've ever been stuffed, Pete? Wow. <laughs> um, in a locker? I uh, had my head uh, shoved in the toilet for a swirly. Oh, jeez. Yikes. Yeah. Wait, were you really stuffed in a locker? Yeah, dude. By a bully? Yeah. Oh, man. Football players. Oh, wow. Wow. I had to do that to myself. Oh, you didn't even have a bully? No, that's not a joke. Back in my day, we last didn't have bullies. Week, last we week of school, ourselves. I was like, I was a nerd. I had never been stuffed in a locker, so I stuffed myself in a locker just to get the experience. Wow, nice. Got your cred. Yeah, did. Did you close it all the way, and did someone have to let you out? Yeah, I closed it all the way. My friend was waiting out there, and I said, okay, you can let me out now, and then he did. Okay. Did you give yourself a wedgie? Did you, were you playing out your own, like, father issues on yourself? <laughs> Listen, I don't want to get into it, but yes. Uh, did you wait, comb your hair back? Hold on, Justin. I see what you're doing. Where's the weirdest place you've been stuffed? Oh, Interesting. I guess I haven't really been stuffed in a lot of places. Um, uh, I was in a cave once for a a long time. (laughs) For a long Uh, time? Well, like I was in there where I was like, I don't like, I want to leave. Oh, okay. Like you went on a cave tour? Oh, I was in a culvert underneath a railroad tracks um, and there was a beaver in there with us. And that was a place I didn't want to be. 
were you in a cartoon at the time, or what was going on? We were. Uh, so this is just how my countrified cred, um, which clashes with my nerd cred. We have a, there was a beaver dam that we had to break up because the water in the lake was getting too high. So we had, we had to go down and break up the beaver dam. And part of doing that, we crawled into this culvert because it was dammed up, and the beaver happened to be there, and he was in the water like the monster in Star Wars uh, in A New Hope that's after them in the. Uh, trash compactor. Yeah, and the trash compactor, right? Yes, that's and called it, Dianoga. Anyway, did, go on. Did you oh. try shooting the beaver with your uh, laser gun? Uh, Alex, get back in your locker for saying that. <laughs> All right, yeah, sorry about didn't that, Didn't need guys. to say that. Get in your locker. <laughs> um, and that's where my, my, uh, my third brother was killed by that beaver that day. Oh, Jesus. Oh, man. Wow, the third Tyler brother. <laughs> They wow. they rumored that for so long in the comics, and then finally they revealed the third Tyler yeah. brother. That was huge. Yeah, uh, we called him Jason X. <laughs> oh, uh, let's go back to Rorschach just for a second. Uh, so as he's walking out of Moloch's place, uh, we get a glimpse again of the sign that's outside there, which is a skull and crossbones made out of an R to the point that Pete made earlier. Do you think, at least in this comic, in this issue, or is it all of the issues, that Rorschach is the pirate in Tales of the Black Freighter? Uh, Could be. Interesting. Uh, yes. I mean, it, it, the, the, this issue has the most uh, Black Freighter stuff um, up to this point as well. So, And he is the one uh, who's sort of like whose life is at the ultimate low point where he's like Mm -hmm. lashing together pieces of information, like the dead bodies of the people around him. I would argue that's what his worldview is, that Mm -hmm. there's nothing's worthwhile. He's just trying to get by and he'll, he's willing to do anything, no matter how horrifying to keep moving. Well, and he's also the person who is, he's the only one that realizes there's some sort of doom coming. Unlike the pirate in tales of the black freighter who knows specifically it's the black freighter that's coming for everybody that's coming for his family. Rorschach doesn't know what it is yet. He just knows something bad is going to happen and he's trying to go as fast as he can to stop it while everybody else, Dan, Laurie, even Dr. Manhattan are kind of just going about their lives and doing their own things. So I think that that point is well made Pete. Uh, then we get a <laughs> yeah. Then we get a scene uh, with the two cops who are such interesting characters to me. I that like really? well, they're interesting because like there's all these other bigger than life, lifelike characters, which are the superheroes, uh, the Minutemen, and the Crime Busters, and everybody else. And then you just have these two cops on the beat who keep coming in every once in a while, sort of like a Rosenkrantz and Guildenstern figure. And it's fun to see them. I don't, I don't what? remember how many more times they turn up, but it's always it's. It was surprising to me what? to see them again in this issue. What? All right. Well, before I unpack that, I just want to talk about. I love how, you know, we kind of have Rorschach's journal talking about a flash of enlightenment, and then you kind of, the next panel is Buddha on the back of a door, you know, with blood. Um, I think that's, uh, I think that's pretty awesome. You love a little Buddha? You love a little Buddha? Well, I love the enlightenment uh, cut, too. I think that's a fun, that's a fun thing. Well, a couple of things about it. I mean, first of all, it has the same blood splash as what's going on on Eddie Blake's 
smiley face button. So it's definitely been defaced in that way. Like it's exactly the same way. Uh, And then also it's something that's uh, perfectly even in parallel, like the Rorschach blot, like the sign outside Moloch the Mystic. Um, So there's that like Dr. Manhattan's kind of like world he's building on Mars. Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, that's a little uneven in terms of his watch cogs and stuff, right? He's just trying to create order, but Rorschach has the same thing backwards and forwards. And I think that's I don't know why you're fighting me on this. Well, we also (laughs) get, we also get in the first half of the issue, we get this triangle with the Buddha. And in the second half of the issue, we get the triangle with the, oh gosh, what do they call them? Gay, not gay lesbians, whatever they're called (laughs) in this world. Mm-hmm. That uh, it's sub- it's something slightly different than what it actually should be. Uh, we'll find it when we get to it. Yeah. Uh, but right, I'm just saying though, when Doctor Manhattan's floating on Mars, all these triangles start appearing in the ground and then keep growing up. So, yeah, those are the watchcocks, right? But I'm saying they look like triangles, which is what Buddha is in. Their wheels. So. Their wheels. Their circles. Pete. We see a lot of triangles Dude, just you're in our life. Killing me, man. I could. The page here, where there's just literally triangles on it, where Doctor Manhattan is. If you go to the next page, there's a triangle. Think about that. Yeah. If you fold over the corner of the page, there's a triangle. Okay. Cool. Pizza is a triangle. All I'm saying is, some people see triangles, some people see circles. Let's just call them shapes. You know. All right. Let's talk about the cops that you love so much. I do like those cops, uh, but uh, I think we could actually move on. We talked about the Black Freighter a little bit. Uh, there's Wait, a scene- why do you why what? do you like the cops? They don't seem very good at their job or aware of anything. I like them because I am curious to see more of them how they play into the narrative. Okay, that's all. I'm yeah, intrigued. they feel like they, that makes sense. Uh, they're just another example of sort of the bleakness of the everyday world. Like we get these two scenes back to back of the cops who sort of like don't know what they're doing and just like talking about how the world's all fucked. And then the next scene is the the kid reading the comic book or I guess the man reading the comic book and the newspaper uh, dealer. And they're talking about the same thing, but they're like sort of a little more scared as opposed to being resigned to their fates. Yeah. Yeah. Now, let I just want to also say we talked about like reading it younger and then reading it now. When I was a kid, I definitely didn't pick up on how meta this was having a kid read a comic while I'm reading a comic, you know? Do you think it would have been kind of interesting if they had the pirate in the Black Freighter tale also reading a comic? Like maybe a comic about Pete LePage? That's good. I I think I would have picked up on that when I was younger. (laughs) Maybe they'll do that in the show. Ooh, personalized shows. That's the next iteration we get. After that, we get a quick scene with Dan and Lori as their relationship starts to build a little bit in this issue. Uh, Lori has been kicked out of uh, the place she was living. She's lost all of her money. She doesn't necessarily want to look for a handout, but Dan offers, uh, says, hey, you can stay at my place. That's absolutely fine. And there's this great panel. Uh, we've talked a lot about the juxtaposition in this comic book. But there's a great panel at the end where they finish their meal. They're walking away. And it says, we're both leftovers. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah. the other thing. HBO's uh, the, the leftovers. HBO's the leftovers. It's a huge oh, oh. hint going Synergy. on there. He well, also says, he also says right. we're lost. Yeah. And hashtag Damon Lindelof. 
Yeah. Wow. It's crazy that they said hashtag back then, because that was sort of not very popular. Um, now, Justin. Maybe they, yes? When you were like, uh, it was just you and the beaver in that, uh, you know, little tunnel thing. Culvert? We see, oh, sorry. We see a, uh, you know, a guy stranded in a raft and kind of pulls a pigeon out of the air and eats it. Were you, and then it cuts to, you know, uh, Night Owl there uh, eating, kind of holding it the same way. Were you worried it would come down to you and the beaver and you would have to eat the beaver? Yeah, I'd eat the beaver and I'd make a little hat out of it. Um, it wow. was No, it was just I didn't like when the beaver was bumping into my leg with its sharp teeth. Ouch. Ew. Yeah. That's terrifying. Scary. I mean, I'm not, you know, beaver's not a scary animal, but put yourself in a tube where you can't really see the exit. It's very far away. It gets scary. Hmm. Um, I want to say uh, something else about... Thing. Yeah, please. Uh, before we move on, I love this panel um, where you have uh, uh, you have Dan uh, looking uh, out. It's like straight out of a romance comic, mm-hmm. uh, except he's in what they traditionally would be the woman's role of like looking fraught uh, right at the camera um, as someone walks away. And I feel like that's a purposeful reference here, and it's great. Yeah. Also, it's nice to see that the guy is looking that way, you know? That's what, That's what Justin saying, just said. Uh, yeah. the, a- there's also the other two things that I'll point out about the scene, and then we'll move on. Uh, you mentioned, Pete, the cut from the pirate on the black freighter desperately eating a seagull to Dan Dryberg desperately eating a chicken leg. And I think the right. implication there is pretty clear is that he's been starving for companionship uh, for a woman to be in his life for a very long time, and he's being fed for the first time, so that's where we're getting there. The other thing uh, with... With the Rorschach of it all, there's reflections throughout the issue, and pretty much every scene with Dan and Lori has a mirror in it to the point where uh, there's one of the panels is completely them having a conversation in the mirror, and you don't see them at all, uh, which I think is kind of just graphically fascinating. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, Then we get the big centerpiece right in the middle of the issue, which is Adrian Veidt's big fight. Uh, he is walking with his new assistant. He walks downstairs and a man Wait. attacks him. Yes, Pete. What do you want to talk about that happened right before that? Uh, <laughs> I want to talk about the, we skipped over the Rorschach kind of like starting his day and being at the diner. I think that's kind of like, we kind of get to see how Rorschach kind of like wakes up, starts his day. And like, it's yeah. not a normal kind of thing, but it is interesting how there is parallels you know like some people say oh i have to put on my face in the morning you know i gotta apply makeup or something like that or you know in rorschach's case like this mask is his face and i thought that was just kind of like an interesting you know you know we all kind of put on masks or whatever when we're going out in public and i think that's well and that also ties into what happens at the end of the issue where the cap cops do finally unmask rorschach yeah and they realize they have no idea who he is because he's just some guy but that's also how rorschach feels he is some guy under the mask but that doesn't matter he is rorschach through and through yeah he says you're taking my skin off i think yeah Yeah. gross Um, Gross. Gross. Have you, did that ever happen to you? Did a bully ever do that to you? Take my skin off? Yeah. Take your skin off, yeah. I've been unskinned before. <laughs> Taking the face skin off. All right, I want to get back to the Adrian Veidt thing because he does have this big fight with this dude in the lobby of his building. Uh, we get a 
a layout that I don't think is like anything else that happens in the comic book. We get almost a two page spread of the fight with a double vertical panel in the middle where you see Adrian Veidt yeah. whipping back this trophy, I want to say, and then whipping it forward. Uh, it's an ashtray. 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 Yes. Thank you. Uh, and the guy eats a poison pill and dies now, this is getting into big spoilers if for whatever reason you haven't read it before. But again, it's very fascinating reading all of the Adrian Veidt stuff, knowing what we know and we knowing what he's going to head towards, because clearly he's setting this up to yeah. make it feel like, oh, the conspiracy is coming after me, too, when in fact he is the one that is setting it up the entire time. Yeah, he he orchestrated this. Um, Spoiler, uh, dude. We find out later. Yeah, um, but I, that's why I think this panel construction is so unique for this comic. Like, we don't see anywhere else the, this number of splash pages, like you said, Alex. And these are really hero. Everyone's a hero shot. It's him, like uh, dodging a bullet, grabbing a weapon, wrecking the dude, and then uh, pulling him out. Like it's like straight out of uh, any other superhero comic. And I just love yeah. that in the end we find out that these. Hero shots are really setting up the villain. It's the one person that gets the hero shot. Yeah, I, and it's really cool that you get, like, the V in the background with the two big panels back-to-back like that. You know, it's really very powerful and reminds me of, like, the kind of, like, X-Men stuff I would see later. The yeah. We've talked about this a bit as well on the podcast, just how well-constructed a mystery this book is, this whole series is, uh, because they give you all the clues, just like Mr. Snowman, you know, uh, and there's a yes. paddle. <laughs> there's a paddle in here, which I love where it's Adrian Vite looking directly at the camera towards the end. And he's talking to the guy, but he's looking directly at us and says, I want to know who's behind this, but yeah. it's him yeah. who's behind it. Yeah. So he knows, um, don't bite down. Don't you scum. I want to know who sent you. It's great. The whole thing. Like, he's telling you the entire time exactly that he did it. And but it's crazy. If this, if this were, like, a Law & Order episode or something, it would be like, wait, how did he know he had a poison pill in his tooth? Like, he just knew? Yeah. Like, that's yeah. crazy. And it's yeah. something that it, – that's a big, stupid thing to say because he wouldn't have known that. Right. But also, in this case, he's a superhero, right? So they all trust him. They know him. Right on the next page, the newspaper man is talking about, oh, who would dare attack that lovely Adrian Veidt? Everybody yeah. thinks he's absolutely yeah. wonderful. So, of course, him being the superhero, to your point, Justin, this incredible hero, he would know about it absolutely. Uh, and then the one last thing, just again, in terms of him like straight up telling us what's going on, there's this whole thing where the assistant uh, wants to make some action figures in his action figure line. They want to make enemies. And he's like, well, who would you make them of? And the last thing he says in the scene is if they ask why, just tell them I don't have any enemies. Yeah. And that's yeah. true. He is the enemy himself. He yeah. doesn't have any enemies other than him. And I think the fact that he's making action figures is a clear indication that he's meant to be Todd McFarlane. <laughs> Again, looking very far ahead, but interesting and correct. forward looking. Uh, yeah, I mean, just the part where he is like reaching into his dude's mouth and his hand is all bloody and the cop is looking on in horror in the background. That really just, just screams like this guy is the villain. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's great. Uh, so then we get another page of the Black Freighter. We get an, uh, and people reacting to what went down with Adrian Veidt. We get another page of Rorschach. Uh, and then we go back to Dan and Laurie again with the mirrors. Uh, we get a scene where he walks her into her bedroom, stares at her longingly in the mirror for a moment. Now, we touched on this the last episode with the Dr. Manhattan-Laurie relationship. How do you feel about the Dan Dryberg-Laurie relationship? Because he's also crazy older than her. Uh, yeah. I mean, is is he? Well, I guess I don't know that. Um, yeah. He is, though, I guess. He must be. Yeah, I think he's like degree. mid to late 40s, and she's 20 to 30 years younger than that, something like that. Wow. Hey, it must be, it's probably like a 20-year age gap or something. Yeah, something like that. Uh, I mean, the way they are on the issue, they feel like contemporaries, so I mm-hmm. don't think we're meant to... Uh, I, I guess in the same way, why is she so young? Because that's a weird thing, and it keeps coming up. But the the, the comic doesn't emphasize that in any way. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, it's not something that I was. I mean, when you talk about it, yeah. But I, yeah, it's not something that they, they play with at all. It doesn't seem like. So. Well, I, I mean, I think they do. But she says, "You're like a big brother." You know that. Which I guess doesn't necessarily imply like a 20 year age difference, but certainly she's not thinking about him, it seems at this point, as a potential lover so much as somebody who is older, somebody who does take care of her. Um, The more that I read this book again at this point, it feels like in a 2019 vein, the women certainly get a short shrift in this book. The focus is much more on the men. And if there is one modern quibble that I think you can have with it, it's definitely that. Yeah, it's written from a like, crazy male perspective. Like, the the women don't really exist, but in relationship to the men, uh, there's no real... Like, it, her whole function in here is to be Dr. Manhattan's uh, wife who leaves him for this other guy. Uh, and it's not... That's not good. No, no. Yeah. No, it's not good. Uh, Also not good is what happens to the pirate of the Black Freighter as he gets attached by a shark. This is, I got to tell you, the first time I read Watchmen, I sort of skimmed the Black Freighter segments because I was like, what's with all the pirates? I don't get this at all. This is ridiculous. Uh, But I definitely remember the shark part. Like there is specifically the coloring that John Higgins does here with all the reds and the pink of the shark and everything. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Terrifying, uh, super intense. It really plays well. Like, I agree with you. When you're younger, I feel like you're not able to draw the literary juxtaposition that's there quite as much. Uh, But it's so cool reading it now. Yeah. And it's also very interesting to kind of, like, get across, like, how, like, crazy the pirate is or whatever. Like, we can see the the coloring of the, the shark, but he also kind of describes it in a different color, which also just hammering down like what he's been through and how like not really he's aware of everything that's happening, but also has a skewed uh, vision. Do you think though, that this scene with the shark is all to set up the raw, raw shark joke that happens in two pages? (laughs) Um, yes. Uh, (laughs) no, but I think, uh, I also think it's about the, I mean, this is the parallel to the story, and, and it's just another sort of advanced clue to what is actually happening in this whole s- story. 
Right. Uh, well, because then we get the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern style cops again. Uh, they're trying to figure out what's going on with Eddie Blake. Uh, and in the middle of that, they get a phone call telling them that somebody has seen raw shark and they realize what it actually is. Uh, did you did you realize when they said raw shark and they realized what it is, what they were talking about? Or did it take you a minute? Uh, it took that? me a minute. It's one of those things that sort of makes you think. Think it draws you out of the story. It sort of like makes you look at the matrix of it uh, for a second because it's like, wait, what are they talking about? And then yeah. it puts like, I, and I think that's an interesting technique to do here. It sort of like resets your brain in a weird way because look, it's one of the only panels, especially with these cops, where there's just the punchline of the joke and a huge reaction from the cop in the foreground. It's like such an emphasized moment, and I think it's meant to sort of get you keyed back into the mystery. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems like this weird dad joke in the middle of a comic. I uh, don't know. It it made me laugh when I realized. I also felt super dubbed that I didn't pick up on it as it happened until I saw Rorschach on the next page. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. I get what we're going for. Uh, but then we get into the next scene with Moloch that we talked about before, which does visually parallel almost exactly what happens towards the beginning of the issue, except this time, as we come around Moloch, we find that he's been shot in the head, Rorschach has been set up, uh, and then we get this action sequence, which, to the point you were making earlier, Justin, Rorschach goes beyond vigilante justice here, to the point where he, I think, he is cruel to these cops who are trying to track him down. What are you? What's your guys' take on it? Uh, well, I would just like to say the coloring of Moloch being shot in the head is uh, really uh, powerful and amazing, and it's yeah. uh, it's kind of spooky. I was the first time I read it, I was really grossed out. Yeah, um, I wouldn't say he's cruel. It ends up being cruelty to these cops, but he's just desperate. Like he's not trying to hurt them more than he needs to for pleasure. I think he's just like. Oh fuck! I have to do everything I can to get away because he's yeah. never been boxed in like this, and he Back like, his whole life's at stake. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, he does though. He gets out. He jumps through a window. He sets people on fire. Ultimately, they yeah, catch does. him. They unmask him. Uh, and there's one again. Like uh, I read this personally as a joke, similar to the raw shark thing. But the second to last panel after he's screaming, no, my face, give it back. Who the hell is he? Uh, they drag him off. He's lost one shoe. His hat is hanging on the other side. And the dialogue is everything balances when clearly this panel in particular does not at all. You have one shoe on, one shoe off. You have the hat in the upper left corner. Uh, certainly it parallels stuff that's gone on at the beginning because we had the newspaper, we had one shoe hitting the puddle at the beginning. We end with the reflection of the pirate-esque sign. Uh, but I don't know. I just thought this was a funny thing where you've had this whole mirror image issue and the second to last paddle is something that throws off that pattern in a certain way. But I think um, on the theme of the story, like 
at the beginning of this issue, uh, Rorschach's walking in super confident, cocky when he's confronting Moloch. He plays a weird trick on him as part of the mystery, and he steps in this puddle with intention uh, to go do that. And the second to last panel, he's being dragged back Mm -hmm. out of the house at its absolute lowest. So I think you it balances out emotionally for Rorschach, where he goes from uh, the top, he's in his element, he's solving a mystery, he's making moves forward to absolutely back to the lowest point he could possibly imagine. I think that's fair. That makes sense. Uh, let's talk about the back matter as well, because there's a whole history of pirate comics that goes on here, which I thought was so neat, and it actually includes a lot of real writers and artists and contemporaries of Alan Moore who were working at DC Comics. Uh, and for those of you who didn't read this or didn't uh, maybe listen to a previous episode of the podcast, uh, one of the things that's going on in this world is because superheroes existed, very specifically Marvel Comics totally failed. Uh, and Marvel Comics totally failed because their big hit was Fantastic Four number one. They made all of their money off of superhero comics, so they never became a thing in this world, versus DC Comics, which has historically actually always been very adaptable in terms of the times, or at least more adaptable seemingly than Marvel. Uh, And here, what they did was they had some hit pirate comics when their superhero line was starting to fail, and they followed that path down, and pirate comics became the biggest thing in the world. Um, I thought it was great. I uh, even more than the under the hood stuff. I really love this one. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, it's such a funny detail, and I know we've talked about it before uh, that pirate comics are so successful in this world. Like it's so weird, and so it reminds me of uh, what is it the uh, the comic about eating uh, where chew uh, chew where the chickens are revered. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's such a funny random detail of that world that doesn't really play into the action, at least at the beginning, and so funny. Yeah. Another thing that I really like about these sections, and again, I'll cop to the fact that I pretty much skipped over them the first time that I read Watchmen, uh, is how good Alan Moore is at writing in different styles, which I think is an incredibly different thing to do. Specifically, I find a lot of times when people try to do the Watchmen thing of having back matter... It feels like a comic book writer trying to do it. You know, my day job is writing news. So certainly, like, I focus on that and I get very picky about that. But when somebody who is not a news writer writes a news article in a comic book, it always feels super off. Like, it does not feel like something anybody would actually write. But the under the hood sections feel like a dishy tell all autobiography. This section, uh, writing about the pirate comics, really does feel like a super scholarly look into the history of comics. Um, again, not that it's a huge revelation that Alan Moore is a good writer, but I've been very impressed to read those just in terms of the different voices that he puts throughout them. And yeah, the specificity also, is cool. It also reminds me, since we're, uh, you know, we also talk about other comics, it reminds me of Hickman's X-Men run where it's like you're getting a lot more like layers to what's happening and there's actual just kind of writing in between the art and uh, real comic. Do you think he ripped off Hickman's X-Men run? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I definitely think Alan Moore ripped off Hickman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he he says- just texted Alan Moore just texted me and he said he did. <laughs> 
Oh, wow. I love how he always knows exactly what we're talking about, even though we're not here. That's, that's why he's my pink champagne buddy. That's the weirdest yeah. thing is, like, we, since we're recording this separately over Skype, like, he is Skyped into this call. He's just not saying anything. <laughs> I can <laughs> see your face, That's just his week because he's busy. I can see he's your face. Taking, yeah. Oh, I love that guy. If you would like to support our <laughs> podcast, patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. at the People's Improv Theater Loft in New York. Come on by. We'll chat with you about Watchmen. A couple of different places socially you can check out this podcast. Pete, you remember what the Facebook page is? Nope. Great. Slam. Uh, it's Watchmen Watch Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Justin, you want to plug that Twitter? Yes, it is. Uh, our Twitter is Comic Book Live, and the Watchmen one is Watchmen Watch One. Is that yeah, right? That I is know right. There's a one in there. There is a one in there. Uh, also, we didn't do this on the first couple of episodes. I did want to give a shout out to Jeff Solomon, who wrote the theme music for the show. Yeah. So uh, good. You, you can check him out on Instagram at Megajerf. That's his Instagram address. <laughs> it's mostly pictures of beautiful food and cocktails he made, but he writes good music as well, so thank you uh, <laughs> Jeff for doing that. Thanks, uh, Jeff. Check us out at comicbookclublive.com for this podcast and more. Our podcast is now live everywhere, so please be sure to subscribe to the specific podcast feed. Um, iTunes, Android, Spotify, Stitcher, app of your choice, particularly on iTunes if you wouldn't mind going over and rating it and leaving us a comment. That would be much appreciated. And remember, we tape this podcast 35 minutes ago bye alan oh you'll be here next he just texted me he'll definitely be here next week and he means it 